terms of announcements, basically two. The baptismal service is tentatively set for July 9th. We have two adults and two kids, and we'll let you know when and a definite on the date when we get that fully settled. If anybody else is interested, know of anybody else that's interested, have them talk to either me or contact Pam Richards. Also, we're having a Saturday Night Family Fellowship on the 20th. That is also Armed Forces Day. So we're multitasking on our family night with um, focus on honoring military. And I, um, <clears throat> I work out with a guy who is, uh, has impressed me as I've known him over the last uh, three years. And he went into the Texas National Guard three years ago, and he's a solid believer. And uh, he's doing some interesting things, so I asked him to come over and, and talk a little bit about what he's doing with the uh, Texas National Guard. And so you'll want to update on that, as well as uh, watching the film God is Not Dead 1, I think there's two, and the second one ended with the lead to a third one. So these, as I understand them, are pretty informative and fit and track with what we're studying on Thursday night in terms of apologetics. So we're going to have a great time. We're going to be showing some videos also for the kids and have that uh, while we're doing the God is not there. I don't think some of the kids are quite track with that as far as I can understand. So that's the plan. How shall young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so each of us can make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit, so that this is a time that is spiritually profitable for us. After a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Uh, Father, what a great couple of days we've had with beautiful weather, a little bit of coolness, and probably the last we may see for some time, and we're thankful for that. We're thankful for being alive another day to serve you, another week to serve you, to grow spiritually, to focus on your word, and we pray that we might keep that keep focused on those as our priorities, that, that all of the other things that we do while important all flow out of our relationship with you in order to ha- for everything else to have and to count for eternity. Father, we pray that as we study tonight, continuing our study and understanding your will for us as believers in the church age, that you would help us to understand this and apply this uh, conscientiously to our day-to-day life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we've gone through... Ten points in the opening of our uh, discussion on the doctrine of the will of God and divine guidance. This is flowing out of, it's a topical study that's coming out of our study in 1 Samuel 23 because there David uh, has a number of decisions to make. Each time he makes those decisions, he goes to the Lord in prayer, asks for God's guidance and direction, talks to the priest, various methods. And people have historically gone to passages like that and I believe have misused them in teaching how people can know the will of God. Ultimately, we know the will of God the same way that David did, and that is through special revelation. But special revelation in the church age has ceased. It is finalized in the canon of Scripture. So the way we know God's will is always the same. He reveals it to us through special verbal uh, revelation. But since he doesn't do it anymore, we go to the Scripture, and the Scripture gives us that which we need to know. It's like uh, our lives are an open book test, and everything, all the answers are there in the book, in, in, in the Scripture. 
But a lot of confusion because of the way this is taught. So we started off, and I just want to review the definitions. Will of God describes three different aspects of divine volition in relation to his creation. And so this is a breakdown theologically. What do we mean when we say, I want to do God's will? Because they have these different meanings. If uh, the first category is God's sovereign will. Now, this is a secret will. Other words are his decreed will or decretive will, his secret will, his permissive will. We don't know it ahead of time. So if I'm saying I want to know God's will, well, God's sovereign will involves the sin, the evil that he allows to take place in creation. So that's not what we mean when we say I want to do God's will tomorrow. Uh, One way or the other, we will always do God's sovereign will because that is what God allows us in the freedom of our volition. So we only know God's sovereign will after the fact. The second category is God's moral will, which is sometimes referred to as his revealed will. It refers to what God has uh, revealed to us in his word, what he desires for us to do. And so that's expressed through all of the positive commands to do certain things in Scripture and the prohibitions. When we talk about specifics, whether I should go to this school or that school, live in this country or that country, go into the Air Force, uh, serve in the military at all, or go into the Air Force, Army, Marines, or Navy, uh, that those kinds of questions are not necessarily, that's the key word, a focus of God's will. It might be. It might be that God wants you to Uh, go into the Marine Corps. And so when you go down to sign up for the Army, they'll reject you, and then you'll go to the Navy, and they'll reject you, and then you'll go to the Air Force, and they'll reject you. But when you go to the Marines, they're going to see something nobody else saw, and that's what you're going to get. The same thing in many areas of life. Uh, We think we want to do or go to work for some company, and we go there, and they reject us, and we apply for this job and that job, and eventually the job that opens up, is that's where the Lord's leading us. That's our opportunity uh, to serve him. God doesn't put a road sign out there and say, this is where I'm leading you. It is more, that's overt. This is more covert. And we don't get the road signs. God's not revealing new things to us through feelings, through some sort of of um, liver quiver, through some sort of emotional state of peace and calm. Those passages, as I've gone through the past few weeks, don't relate to our knowledge of the will, of God's will. He will override our bad decisions. If he does not want you to live in Houston, Texas, you won't be able to get a job in Houston, Texas. But if he does have that as a specific, then you will, and you won't be able to find anything anywhere else. Sometimes that's frustrating for folks. So I use this diagram using two circles. The circle on the left is all of God's sovereign will, what he will allow to happen his secret will and it's what God permits it includes both sin and evil he allows sin and I mean it allows sin and evil because God permits volition human individual responsibility the freedom to succeed to do the right thing is um, comparable or is um directly related to the degree to fail. If we're not permitted to sin, then we're not really permitted to succeed. So God permits certain things. That's sin. So you have two areas, sin and not sin, in terms of God's permissive will. But in terms of God's moral will, it's all not sin. It's doing what God commands or prohibits in in the scriptures. So we are to live inside of God's moral revealed will to the degree that we can. When we sin, we're outside that circle. 
when we confess sin, we're back in the circle. Learning to live in the circle is what the New Testament describes as living in God's will. It doesn't necessarily relate to uh, geography. It doesn't relate to uh, some of these other areas of specifics. It doesn't necessarily relate to uh, being married to to a right person or going to a right church. Somebody once said to me, "If you're, if you, if you're, if you think you have a right pastor, and he's in Houston or Pennsylvania or Los Angeles, and you're somewhere else." then you would necessarily be outside the will of God if you didn't move there. And that's a true statement. But it's all built on a fallacy that there's these specifics in the will of God. There's no such thing as a right pastor. There's no such thing as a right church, and there's no such thing as a necessary geographical will. If you're in in Nacogdoches, Texas, then God's will is for you to be involved in a local church if there is one there that is reasonably acceptable. Now, fortunately, today, we live in a world where there's a lot of solid Bible teaching available outside of your geographical area. Now, I taught this one time when I was in Connecticut, and I got an email a couple of years later from a guy up in Vermont, and he said, the best church in this town where I live uh, doesn't believe in the virgin birth or the deity of Christ. And I've gone there a few times, and I think my son ought to grow up in church, but I'm not really sure that that's what you mean. I said, no, that's not what I mean. If there isn't a church near anywhere in your vicinity that teaches any measure of truth, it may be Pablum, it may be a, a, an inch deep and a mile wide, but if it, even if it's maybe you, God wants you to go there so you can have a ministry, and so you can uh, maybe as one guy did who listened to me years ago, he got involved in a local church where he was stationed in the military, and the pastor said, "I've been looking for somebody who can teach the adult Sunday school class," and gave him that assignment. And so he taught the adult Sunday school class, taught him dispensations and free grace and all kinds of other things because he he didn't go there and say, well, the pastor got these five things wrong. I don't agree with him. They weren't heresy. Uh, He had the opportunity to serve. So God wants you to be involved in those ministries, and you can supplement with whatever is available on the Internet. If you're uh, a pastor who you think teaches you the best, that's not necessarily what the doctrine of right pastor meant. But if you think that the pastor who can teach you the best is not in your vicinity, you can listen to them. But that doesn't mean you don't get involved in a local church. Okay, all of that by way of quick review to understand the terminology. And let's look, go on to look at what the Scripture says in the I've got about nine more points. I think we can wrap this up tonight. As we learn doctrine, and the Holy Spirit stores the doctrine in our soul, and that's called retention, then in decision-making, the Holy Spirit is involved in retrieving the information for application. That's called recall. Okay? What I, the point I'm making in this is the 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 will of God is for us to regularly, consistently, day in and day out, meditate on God's Word. That's Psalm 1. Day and night. Tell me a time period that doesn't fit within the category of either day or night. Okay? Day or night, we meditate on His Word. That doesn't mean every second of the day. It's talking about the totality of that this is the general characteristic that as we go through our lives, we continuously think about the Word of God. And so we're to study the Word of God. And as we do in this church age, walking by the Spirit, who is the dynamic of the spiritual life, then the Holy Spirit not only helps us to understand the Word of God, but He is the one who stores it in our soul. And that then is brought back to our mind when we need to use it. When I first 
became a pastor, and I was pastoring at a church down in Lamarck, Texas, I remember the, the, the first two or three weeks, I would get up and I would teach, and all of a sudden verses that I had memorized a long time before as a kid at camp or in church or wherever would suddenly pop into my head. Perfect application, a perfect verse for what I was teaching. That's the that's what God the Holy Spirit does. It's not something mystical. It is that he brings the word to our mind when it's time to apply it. And so that is the process of recall. He stored, but But if we don't take the time to learn the Word, to memorize the Word, to store so that we give the Holy Spirit the tools that are necessary, then, then He doesn't have anything to bring to our memory when, when we need to apply it. If somebody's never memorized any promises or never, never learned that, and then they get in a situation, they can't even say, well, trust in the Lord. That's why I repeat those verses over and over again, because those may be the only verses a lot of people ever memorize is because they've heard me say them a hundred, two hundred times. So that's, this is the process. And this is how God helps us to understand his will is through the recall of the scripture, uh, the scripture that we have learned. So this is very much a part of the day-to-day process in, uh, the Christian, in the Christian life. So we learn the will of God by going through the process of studying the Word and the Holy Spirit stores it in our soul. When I concluded last time under point 10, I was reciting uh, verses such as Psalm 32, 8, where God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And in that verse, what we see is that God is the one who is initiating and directing the process of our spiritual growth. But if we're not putting ourselves in the position of studying, reading, learning, then then that's not going to happen. Uh, I've used the illustration many times. The Holy Spirit is in the process of completely overhauling our life. It's like taking a car that was totaled uh, 40 years ago in a wreck, and it's been sitting in a junkyard, and now it has to be made compl- not only completely serviceable, but better than new. Now, you can either give the mechanic all the latest tools and computers and analytics and everything that, that's available, or you can give them just a screwdriver and a hammer. And a lot of Christians expect the Holy Spirit to overhaul their life by giving him a screwdriver and a hammer. They, they, they don't study the Word. They don't learn the Word. They don't internalize the Word. They, they, they don't have anything. And they expect somehow that God's going to do, do these miracles in, his, in their life. Well, God can do the miracles, but that hasn't how he has defined the process in the Scripture. The more we study the Word, the more tools we're giving the Holy Spirit to use. He doesn't operate in a vacuum. It's not a mystical thing where he's just going to override uh, 20 years of bad decisions and refusal to read the Word and to learn the Word and internalize the Word and say, okay, now that you're in a bind, I'm just going to you know, wiggle my nose or snap my fingers or whatever, and the doctrine that you never took the time to learn is just going to pop into your head. It's not how it works. So the will of God is for us to be diligent in our in our study. Point number 12. Along with specific doctrine, specific teaching, that's what the word doctrine means, is what does the Bible teach about different circumstances and situations? And we learn the word, and we're fond of the word categorical, which is what this is, a categorical study, because what a categorical study does is it takes and summarizes the breadth of what the Scripture says on a particular topic, and then it, it, it targets it. 
So that's what is going on here. Along with specific teaching for a specific t- situation, doctrine also produces sort of an overflow effect of developing wisdom in our lives. And we studied wisdom many times. We've studied it in the Psalms. We've studied it in Proverbs. That the, the biblical idea of wisdom is not uh, intelligent uh our intellectual activity, which is how the Greeks described wisdom. It was the wisdom of the philosophers, the ability to uh, think through things, the ability to use rhetoric a certain way, the use of logic. That's not what the Bible refers to by wisdom. By wisdom, it's an Old Testament Hebrew concept of skill. The same word chokmah that's used for Uh, the skill of living in Proverbs and the Psalms is the word that was used to describe the skillful uh, abilities of Aholiab, Bezalel and Aholiab, who were the craftsmen who oversaw the various guilds or groups that were working on making the uh, articles of gold, the articles of silver, the wood, the craftsmanship, all that was involved in the um, in in making the tabernacle, and that was a skill to create something of beauty from raw materials. So, what we see in the biblical concept is that wisdom in the Christian life is the ability to put into practice the raw materials that we learn in Bible class, the raw materials we learn in our Bible reading and Bible study, and to create something uh, by means of the Holy Spirit in our spiritual life that's a work of art that will bring glory to God. So wisdom then becomes a framework so that as we face issues in life, we're then able to take that wisdom and apply it to those situations, and we're making wise decisions as opposed to foolish decisions. And that produces a spiritual work of art. That's that, The idea, therefore, isn't, God, what do I do in this situation? But based on the doctrine that I know, what what is... What would be the wise thing to do? What is it that produces glory for you? Because if we're walking by the Spirit, we're fulfilling the commands of Scripture related to staying in fellowship, walking by the Spirit, then the issue is as long as the decision we're making brings glory to God, it's the will of God. But Within that hierarchy, there are decisions related to that which is good, that which is minimal, and that which is excellent. And so the choice for the growing, maturing believer is often a decision between not what keeps me in my comfort zone as long as I'm still walking by the Spirit, But what is it that really brings glory to God? What is it that is the pursuit of excellence? Here's a quote, I hope I don't butcher it, that I ran across recently from Vince Lombardi. Great quote. Says, excellence, I mean, excuse me, see, I've already blown it. Perfection is impossible. But if we aim for perfection, perhaps we will hit excellence. Isn't that a great, great quote? We know we can't achieve perfection in the spiritual life. I've, I've thought about making that a motto and sticking that on the Dean Bible Ministries website. We know we can't achieve perfection in the Christian life, but if we shoot for perfection, maybe we will hit excellence. We need to have a high standard for the spiritual life. That's not legalism. Often what I've heard when I was growing up sometimes is rationalizations that, oh, that's, that's, that's really fanatical, intense obedience, study of God's word. That's legalistic. It was lowball. I don't want to really have to fight with my sin nature that, that much. So I'll just uh, prebound. I will confess my sin ahead of time and, and then... Uh, uh, 
<clears throat> that's that's okay, and I don't have to struggle to, struggle too much. Wisdom is the pursuit of excellence in the Christian life, and so we need to make decisions based on that. When we get up in the day, how are we going to spend our time? Ephesians five seventeen tells us that we are to redeem the time. That means we only have a certain amount of time and we need to decide how we're going to use it, what's the best use of our time in terms of where we're going to study for eternity. The final exam that's given at the uh, judgment seat of Christ is not going to focus on how you spent your leisure time in terms of relaxation unless it you didn't use it for your spiritual life when you could. That's going to be the focal point. Now, everybody's got to make their own decisions based upon where they are in life, and we can't let somebody else judge us. That's the problem with judging others. You don't know what's going on in their life. So the issue in decision-making is always going to relate not not always to the ultimate decision, but also the process of the decision. And the Lord is looking at those things. So it's that stored doctrine that gives us the discernment to recognize when some division, when some decisions might involve a specific or distinct geographic or op- operational will from God. Some, um, some situations are that way, and we have to learn that, that discernment. And I've had situations in my life where I knew that, that God closed all the doors and there was a specific geographical will, but there are other times when there's not. And that's okay. Some people think, oh, that's awful loose. No. We don't get up every day. And, and, and if, if God has a specific point where he wants you every single day, then you need to be asking yourself, well, where does God want me to date geographically? Does God want me to drive from, let's say, West Houston downtown uh, via I-10, or should I go down Westheimer? Because if God has a specific geographical will for your life, then there's a difference between taking Route 1, Route 2, and Route 3. But we don't, ever, we don't carry it to that extent, but that's the logical implication. Doctrine helps us to have a, make a wise decision and glorify God in that, in that process. Thirteenth point, when we talk about the geographical will of God, it relates to operating in a specific location. Jonah in Nineveh, Paul in Rome, uh, there were other uh, situations that we have in Scripture where specific things uh, or individuals need to be in specific places. But that didn't always mean that. I, I constantly go back to this uh, second missionary journey of Paul. When they want to go back, they, they wanted to go to Asia. And A- Asia at that time, we're not talking about China and the Far East, we're talking about the Roman province of Asia, which was the uh, southwestern area of what is now modern Turkey. Ephesus was at the heart of that. And after they went and revisited the churches they had been to in south central Turkey on that first missionary journey, then they wanted to go to go to um, Asia and have a ministry there, but the text just says the Holy Spirit prevented them. Doesn't tell us how. It could have been through circumstances. It could have been through uh, special revelation of some sort. We don't know, and it's not important for us to know. But the Holy Spirit said, "No, you're not going there." And then they thought, "Well, we'll go. We'll go to the right. We'll go." Uh, to the north northeast, and we'll go to Bithynia. The Holy Spirit said, no, you're not going that way. So they just went up between those two regions, and they didn't know from day to day where they were eventually being, being directed uh, until they got, to, um, until they got to, to, to Troas. And then there was a dream, special revelation, as to the fact that they were to cross over and go into Europe and take the gospel. Uh, eventually, they went to, on that journey, the first place they went to and had a ministry was Philippi. So there it's clearly times like that, but not always, not always. And so it's okay. As a missionary, 
Somebody asked me this question last week. Well, does God call you to, as a missionary, does God call you to China or God call you to Ukraine or God call you to a specific country? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe the issue is a decision to serve the Lord in some ministry capacity, and and as long as you're doing that, God's going to direct your paths to some place or another. Now, there clearly have been in church history, I think, people who have where the Lord has really uh, put on their mind, I avoid the term put on their heart, that's so vague and spiritual sounding, put into their mind a particular place, and they just really feel focused on that. People like Hudson Taylor, from the time he was a young man, just was was focused, obsessive about China. I think that's the Lord working. But other people, it, it, it wasn't that way. And that's what the Lord was doing with Hudson Taylor, wasn't a pattern that should be true for everybody else. Unfortunately, that's what happens. We think, oh, see how it did, what a wonderful ministry he had. God called him to China. Where's God calling you? Well, maybe not. I know of uh, people who were convinced that God was calling them to a ministry in South America. Gordon Whitelock, who founded Camp Penile here in, in, uh, in Texas, graduated from Moody Bible Institute in the uh, early 30s, uh, married his wife Alice, and uh, they both were convinced that God wanted them to be missionaries in South America. But they needed to raise support, so in the meantime, had an opportunity to come down to Houston to a place uh, called Pierce Junction, which is now generally known as Almeida. And it was a place where you, you had oil companies and pipelines came together, and it was just a, oil, a patch on the oil field down south of Houston. And so he came down to pastor that church for a year or two and took advantage of the opportunities that God God brought him. He started one of the first five young life groups in Texas. He as he did that, he was teaching going into you know after school Bible clubs with uh, with high school kids. In that process, he led my mother to the Lord along with I don't know how many others. And from that, he developed the idea of taking these kids camping. That developed into uh, eventually into the Campanile ministry, and he never ever made it to South America. But guess what? He did what God wanted him to do. But this idea that somehow we have to have a calling to something, anybody who knew what he did with Camp and I would say, well, that's what God called him to do. Yes, we see that in hindsight, that was God's sovereign will. But at the beginning, that wasn't what he, he thought was true. And there's thousands of stories like that. So we... God doesn't call us. You know, this brings up another topic. A favorite question that is asked in ordination in ordination uh, services or in the examination is to ask a young man, how do you know God has called you to the ministry? And Gary Friesen, in the book that I mentioned last week, Decision Making in the Will of God, is a whole chapter on this. And uh, it was, either, I can't remember now whether it was he or someone else who said, well, I'm not sure I understand the question. Would you please explain to me what it means to be called to the ministry, where that's defined in Scripture, and how I know it? And all the men on the ordination council looked back and forth at each other, waiting for somebody else to come up with something, and nobody ever did because it's not in the Bible. There's no such thing. When you study the word calling in the Bible, we are called to salvation. We are not called to ministry. We're not called to the mission field uh, other than every believer is called to the mission field at the instant of salvation, whether that mission field is your next-door neighbor or somebody on the other side of the world. But you're, and everybody is in that sense called to ministry because we're given a spiritual gift and we're to serve the Lord in using that uh, however the Lord gives us those opportunities. But there's no such thing as a call to the, to the pastorate. If God gives you a, gift, a, a spiritual gift to pastor, teacher, then you can say, well, 
I've been, I believe that God gifted me as pastor teacher. I've used, uh, I've taught Bible studies. I've taught in, and this is how I answered the question. I've taught at, at, at Christian camps. Uh, this se- people seem to respond to it. I enjoy it. I think this is the best way I can serve the Lord. That's, a, that's the way to answer the question. There's no liver quiver. There's no navel gazing. Uh, there's no feeling that somehow you're, you're struck with uh, some sort of spiritual lightning or experience. You just recognize that as you grow and mature, that God has enabled you in these areas. So that leads into the 14th point, that the operational will of God includes both your spiritual gift and your natural talents and abilities. God the Holy Spirit gives everyone at least one spiritual gift at the instant of salvation. And a lot of debate as to whether it's one or more. I think it's. I think there, there's a blend uh, in most people. One or two spiritual gifts. Some are. You, there's. There's uh, the measure of the gift is greater for some than it is for others, and that as as that works itself out in combination in your life with your natural talents and abilities that came from birth, came from your genetics, came from your environment. Uh, as you apply that, it's going to uh, look differently for you than anybody else. Uh, so that's true for every pastor. Too many young men think they have to emulate somebody else and be somebody else because that somebody else really impacted their life. But <clears throat> God has the desire to have numerous people with the gift of pastor-teacher to minister to many different people and different personalities in different geographical uh, locations. And so the operational will for everybody is to grow and mature so that they can be more effective in serving the Lord with reference to their spiritual gift. Now, does that mean you have to be able to say, well, I know what my spiritual gift is? Absolutely not. There are many people who have uh, led uh, lives of tremendous spiritual service and have no idea what their spiritual gift is. Of course, one of the spiritual gifts is the gift of administration. That's a pretty broad category, or the gift of leadership, or the gift of serving. That's a huge category. You can take somebody who has a spiritual gift of serving, and God naturally uh, endowed them with a, ta- with a musical talent, Well, one of the ways that they can serve exercising their spiritual gift is through using their natural talent uh, to to play musical instrument or to sing or something something of that nature, and that's part of God's will for our life because God's will is for us to grow and mature and develop in these areas. Somebody may have a natural ability working with numbers, and so as they go to school, they learn. Uh, learn to be a bookkeeper, they learn to be an accountant, and they have spiritual gift of service. So they can take their spiritual gift of service and use that to help the church in the area of bookkeeping and accounting, things like that. That's how how the natural gifts and abilities work with our spiritual gift. And some people, they as they grow and mature, their mentality is, I'm just looking for an opportunity to help. So they, they probably have the gift of helps. But they never really identify it as such. They're just, as they mature, they just see opportunities and they take advantage of them. That's how it is. You don't need to take um, some sort of skills test to identify your spiritual gift. That was very popular back in the uh, 70s. I remember there were a number of Christian magazines, and they would publish these little tests, you know, 15, 20, 30 questions. You take them, and then you can score yourself, and you'll decide what your spiritual gift is. And they were no different from the kinds of skill assessments you'd get if you went to some uh, job counselor, career counselor, trying to figure out what in the world you wanted to do. And you would take a battery of exams, and it would tell you what what you probably thought you were going to do as you as you grew grew up. So um, you don't have to know your spiritual gift to use your spiritual gift. Yeah, but you do have to grow and mature in the spiritual life to use your spiritual gift. Fifteenth point: Often 
Decisions in life are not related as much to the final decision as testing the process of deciding. How are you going to apply doctrine? That's the test, is the methodology. It's how are you going to solve the problem in, in, in this, uh, this particular, uh, particular test. So um, I've talked about that in the past, so we can just go on to the next one. In Numbers 22, let's turn to Numbers in the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 22, we have <coughs> an example of these categories of God's will in the life of Balaam. Now, Balaam is a an apostate prophet. It's clear he does have a gift of prophecy. And in Numbers, uh, what we see is the story of Israel coming around on the east side of the Jordan, going through... Um, going through Moab uh, before they go into the promised land. And the uh, uh, king of Moab wants to stop them, wants to prevent them, and he is uh, uh, doing everything he can, so he calls on this false prophet to uh, to curse them. But it, it, it's without getting into a lot of the, the, the specific details, what happens is that, that God is working to protect Israel from Balaam, Balaam as the false prophet. And in verse 12, God speaks to Balaam and says after he is requested by um, Balak, the king of Moab, to curse the Jews, then God speaks to Balaam. You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So this is God's revealed will. He's telling Balaam what he can and cannot do. Now, as we go through the story, Balaam keeps trying to push the borders just like a disobedient kid. Parents say, you can't go outside. So they open the front door, and they put their foot right up on the threshold of the door, and then they start inching it out the door to see if they're going to get some reaction from, from the parents. We've all either done that or seen that or both. So that's sort of what Balaam is doing here. He really wants the money and the reward. He wants to figure out a way where he's not going to curse him, but he's still going to get the reward. So after God tells him he can't do it, then he goes ahead anyway. But God allows him to go. Verse 20, God came to Balaam at night and said to him, again, we have direct revelation. If the men come to call you, this isn't a feeling, it's not an emotion, it's not liver quiver, navel gazing. There's specific propositional truth communicated in words. If the men come to call you, rise and go with them. So God's going to permit him to go. But only the word which I speak to you, that you shall do. Okay, you can go. I'm going to let you go. I, that's not what the original command was. What's the revealed will of God? You shall not go. What's the permissive will of God? You can go, but you can't talk. You can't curse him. And then you have the overriding will of God that we see in the next chapter. For example, in uh, Numbers 23, 5, God's overriding will. Balaam's going to say something, and God just overrides it. Verse 5, Then the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. And then in verse 15, And he said to Balak, This is Balak talking, um, Balaam talking to Balak. He said to him, Stand here by your burnt offering while I meet the Lord over there. And as we see this, we see God overriding, overruling Balaam's constant attempts to try to curse Israel so he can get the big payday. So the principle here is that even when we make the wrong decision related to God's geographical will or operational will, his overriding will kicks in and resolves the problem. God, we can't make a bad decision. 
if in terms of these neutral areas, if God does want us somewhere, God's going to get us there. Okay, let's go back to the New Testament, Acts 15. This passage gives us, it, it goes back to what I talked about last time when talking about Cornelius the Gentile, and Peter taking the gospel to, to uh, Cornelius. And then he comes back to, uh, after that in Acts 11, he comes back and, and talks, gives a report in Jerusalem. But then this whole issue with what do we do with these goy, with the Gentiles, with these unclean uh, Gentiles, they, 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 they don't observe Shabbat. They're, they're eating breakfast at bacon. I mean, they're eating bacon at breakfast. Just wanted to see if you were paying attention. They're eating bacon at breakfast. They're 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 thinking they can they can cleanse the shrimp by just cutting the tail off and circumcising them. They just got all these all these uh, different problems. So they have a council. The apostle, verse uh, chapter fifteen verse six. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider the matter. That is. What are we going to do with the Gentiles? And this has become uh, divisive because there are those who have come are saved, but their background is is legalism and the sect of the Pharisees in verse 5, and they think that they have to be circumcised. We have to bring these Gentiles in under the law. So they have a council, first church council, recorded in the scripture, and they come together, and it's described in verses uh, six to twenty-two, and so they they go this through this process of describing in Acts fifteen what what has been going on, and so um, <clears throat> Peter stands up and talks about how God revealed to him that he was to uh, that he had declared the Gentiles clean, and he was supposed to take the gospel to the Gentiles, and and what he did. And verse 9, he made no distinction uh, between us and them purifying their hearts by faith, by, by faith. And so he talks. Then, after he finishes, uh, Barnabas and Paul talk about how God worked with them among the Gentiles. And after they gave their testimony, verse 13, uh, James uh, Draw some conclusions and that are that are very important. I want you to just look at the language after he relates what has happened, and he goes back to the Old Testament where he quotes uh, from uh, he quotes from Amos nine eleven and twelve that that there will be a time when the tabernacle of David that is a reference to Israel is fallen down and collapsed. They're under divine discipline. So that, verse 17, which is a quote from uh, from Amos 9.12, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. There's a purpose in that divine discipline on, on Israel. So the rest of mankind, even all the Gentiles, will seek the Lord. So what he is saying there is God's intent always was to include Gentiles in salvation. So after he makes an Old Testament application, he says in verse 19, Therefore I judge. He's making an evaluation statement. God is not telling them how to specifically handle this situation. There's been revelation in the past Revelation to Peter, Revelation to Paul and Barnabas, Revelation in the Old Testament. Now they have to apply that past revelation to this problem without direct revelation from God as to how to handle this problem. So he he looks at the data of Scripture. He says, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. He's making an application point. Furthermore, as it goes down, as we go down to verse 22, Luke writes, Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. It pleased them. They're making a decision from wisdom. 
and they say, how should we inform or communicate the church? They don't get out the Urim and Thummim and ask God what to do. They make an applicational decision based on the doctrine and based on wisdom, and so they're going to send uh, some chosen men to Antioch to accompany Paul and Barnabas as they go back to bring an answer to this question. So they wrote a letter, and no, God doesn't reveal to them that they should write a letter. They're making an uh, application of wisdom to the circumstances. And in that, they start. They, they make this statement in verses 24 and 25. They say, Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling your souls, that's the problem they're trying to address. How do we solve this problem? <clears throat> Saying that you must be circumcised and keep the law. It seemed good to us. Notice how, you ought to underline that phrase. In, that begins verse 25, and you see it again in verse 28, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. It seemed good to us, first of all. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit, second of all. They're not claiming special revelation in how they should handle the problem. We looked at previous special revelation. We looked at the circumstances, and then we had to make a decision related to application. It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. That takes you right back to that language of verse 22. Then it pleased the apostles. It pleased the apostles and elders. So it's, it's a point of application. Verse 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. Now, it wasn't that the Holy Spirit gave them direct revelation. It's that the Holy Spirit was working in their recall and application of the doctrine that had already been revealed to them. My point is they have a decision to make. They have a conflict in the church. And the way they handle it is to go to special revelation and to derive principles from that past special revelation to apply to the current circumstance. They're not saying, God, tell us what to do, and expecting God to give them new revelation to, for this specific set of circumstances. So that's decision-making and, and, um, and wisdom. We see it also in... Paul's statements when Paul is getting ready to after the first uh, missionary journey they come back report and after a while Paul says to Barnabas it's God's will it's God's will for us to go on another journey is that what he said? no he says let's go back and visit the brethren in every city which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are it's almost like a common-sense approach to doing the will of God. We took the gospel to them, and we taught them some, some of the word, but now we need to go back. We don't need God to tell us we need to go back. It, it, it ought to be obvious that there should be follow-up. We have the passage I alluded to earlier, Acts 20.16. Uh, no, excuse me, this isn't what I'd re uh, referred to earlier. Paul is... Uh, Returning, going on his way to Jerusalem at the end of the um, third missionary journey. He decided to sail past Ephesus. Notice, he doesn't say, God told me to sail past Ephesus. He doesn't say, I sought the Lord in fasting and prayer, and he told me I didn't need to go to Ephesus. He made a decision that he's, he's trying to get to Jerusalem before Passover, and in order to make the timetable, he doesn't have time to go to Ephesus, so the wise decision is to bypass Ephesus. Okay. Skip a few of these point, uh, verses. Verse eight, uh, point 18, in every incident of a specific will of God, it's only known through special revelation. God does have specific things for us. But the way we learn them is to go to the Scripture. And God has recorded it there for us. 
uh, two more points, or one more point, I think. In some Old Testament cases, God directly put thoughts in the mind of a leader. God put certain thoughts or ideas into the heart that is the mind of Nehemiah. You read Nehemiah, and constantly Nehemiah says, God put this in my, in my heart. God put this in my mind. And I think God does that today. That's not special revelation. That's the Holy Spirit bringing things to our mind. Now, it's covert. So I'm real hesitant. I don't have special revelation like Nehemiah did to say, oh, God brought this thought into my mind and not that thought into my mind. Okay? You hear a lot of Christians who use this language today But Nehemiah had special, as a writer of Scripture, he had special revelation from God to know which thoughts came from the Holy Spirit, which uh, uh, came from God, and which thoughts did not. I don't have that. If you talk to some unbeliever, they'll be doing some project or something, all of a sudden some thought pops in their head. That doesn't mean that God put it there. How do I know today that God put some thoughts in my mind and not others? I don't unless what is coming into my head is doctrine through the Holy Spirit reminding me of what the Word of God says so that I can apply it. So the conclusion is, uh, what God wants us to know regarding His will, He has always revealed directly to those responsible. Okay, in the past, if God wanted something specific done, he, there was direct revelation. Today, God's will is completely sufficiently and finally revealed in his word. That's where we go. We don't go to the priest and take a look with the Urim and Thummim or go to a prophet. So God is no longer directly revealing his will to us independently. We are responsible for knowing his will from Scripture and then applying it. It's a mature approach. We're not a little kid going to mommy and daddy asking them what we do every time some situation arises. We have grown up. We've left home, as it were. We have the the rearing that our parents and the training that our parents have given us. And now when we go out into the world, we have to take what they've taught us and we have to apply it on our own. We can't go running home to mommy and daddy every time there's a decision that has to be made. That's an analogy that is roughly scriptural because it talks, you know, in Galatians, Paul talks about the Old Testament was like a child under a tutor. But now we've grown up. We've, and what part of that maturity is the Word of God? I want to wrap with a couple of things that, um, and a couple of passages that I think are very important for making, making wise, wise decisions. First of all, Let's just look at, I want to look at broad passages here very, very quickly. You can go back and read them later. But let's look at Ephesians chapter 5. These are all passages related to God's will for our life. Ephesians 5 is the, I think, the, the central chapter in 4, 5, and 6. 4, 1 starts off, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. What's God's will for your life? To walk worthy of the calling with which we were called. That's salvation. Okay? Then we skip on down to um, <clears throat> series of commands at starting in verse 25 that all relate to putting away sin. That sin should not characterize a believer. Now, is Paul saying we can be perfect? No. Is he saying that um, that this is a legalistic way to uh, achieve spirituality? Well, no. But if we're sinning, we're not walking by the Spirit. So we have to remove that sinful lifestyle. And so there's a number of, of uh, prohibitions that are given in verses 25 through 30. Uh, 31 says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. That ought to be the motto of every political party. I don't care what you, what you are. That ought to be a, a, the motto of every political party today. Um, and be kind to one another. There's the positive command. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. The Greek word there is charizomai, being gracious to one another, 
Even as God in Christ Jesus forgave you, therefore be imitators of God as dear children. See, verse 1 flow, uh, five flows out of verse 32. It's unfortunate the chapter break occurs there. And then he, he continues this metaphor of, wa- of walking and walk in love. That's what God wants, to walk in love. And then there's uh, two or three verses about the negatives, setting aside fornication, all uncleanness, covetousness, uh, filthiness, fuel is talking, coarse jesting are not fitting, but instead giving thanks, being gra- grateful and gracious towards, towards others. And then when we get down to verse 8, he says, uh, For you once you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So we're to walk as children of light. And then we are to walk in wisdom. Verse 15, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but wise. What does a wise person do? A wise person redeems the time. Verse 16, I think earlier I misspoke and said it was uh, 517, but it's 516. Therefore, don't be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. How do we do that? Don't be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled by means of the Holy Spirit. That you're filled with what? You're filled with the Word of God. And then we go on with a lot of specific application. That's a great passage to think about in terms of the will of God. Are we walking in love? Are we walking as children in light? Are we walking as wise? Are we walking by the Spirit? Galatians uh, 5.16. So Galatians 5, which I talked about a lot last time, that's another key passage. Um, to walk by means of the Spirit, and we will not uh, fulfill uh, the lust of the flesh. Another key passage is John 15. Skip over there very rapidly. These are broad passages that every believer should think through because they relate to your spiritual life and the, and the commands of Scripture. And in John chapter 15, Jesus' command to his disciples is that we are to abide in him. And abiding in him is another way of talking about fellowship. And he says in verse 4, John fifteen four, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So the, the precondition to bearing fruit in John fifteen four is abiding in him. The precondition for abiding, I mean, for, for bearing fruit in Gal- Galatians is what? Walking by the Spirit. In Ephesians 5, 8, the precondition for bearing fruit in verse 9 is to walk as children of light. So abiding in Christ, walking as a child of light, walking as wise, being filled by means of the Spirit, walking by the Spirit are all roughly identical because they all are the um, necessary condition for producing fruit. So, verse 7 of John 15, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Yeah, the big condition is abiding in him and his word abiding in you. Then you're not going to desire something that is inconsistent or contradictory uh, to the word of God. Those are just some of the some of the key passages that we have in Scripture defining the will of God. Other places to look would be 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 22. A, a bullet list of commands. Rejoice always. Not some of the time, not just when you're in church. Always. Mental attitude. It's not every second of every day, but that's your general mental attitude. Pray without ceasing. And everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Again, gratitude is emphasized. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. These are key passages. Uh, Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, we see this emphasis on rejoice as in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. 
Let your gentleness, that's grace, orientation, and humility, be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. See, God's will is for you is not to be a worry wart, not to wake up having a panic attack every, every night and manufacture things to worry about. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God. That's the result of prayer. It's not the result of finding God's special will for your life. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Then verse 8, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue or anything praiseworthy, meditate or think on these things. See, that is the focal point for the will of God. Are you doing those things? If you're doing those things and you're walking by the Spirit, you're in the will of God. But when we sin, we're out of the will of God. And it doesn't matter. If you're out of the will of God, you can be, Jonah could be anywhere. But if he was out of the will of God, even in Nineveh, then he was going to... And that's what eventually happened to him. He got out of the will of God because after he got there and everybody... Everybody responded to the gospel, and God graciously um, withheld the judgment on Nineveh for another 200 years. Jonah had a pity party and went out and decided that I'm mad. I'm going to sit out here and eat dirt. God is being too kind to the Ninevites. And he immediately went into bitterness and uh, mental attitude sins, and so God had to teach him another, another lesson. So how do we know God's will? Very simple. Study, learn the Word of God, and do what it says. If we're walking by the Spirit, walking in the Word, walking in the light, then God is going to direct our paths. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study and to come to understand your will, your purpose for our lives, how to think about decision-making and your will. And we pray that that as we study your word, and as we apply it, that we will have the spiritual courage and strength to trust you and to uh, rely upon you to guide and direct our lives, our paths. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.